Hello, Brad here. Just to say we're super proud that the Friday 5pm podcast is sponsored by the Malt Miller, the UK's best home brew store. We use the Malt Miller for all of our homebrew experiments, as well as tapping them up for advice and binging on their awesome YouTube channel all the time. That's why whenever we release a homebrew video, we put a recipe kit live on the Malt Miller, so you can brew with the exact same amazing ingredients that we did. The same ingredients used by pro brewers. So alongside the Malt Miller's nitro-flushed hops, cold-stored yeast and milled-to-order malts, you can pick up recipe kits for our Five Points Best Bitter, Russian River West Coast IPA, and now the fastest beer in the world, a hazy session IPA that goes from grain to glass in less than 48 hours. Sign up to their newsletter at tinyurl.com forward slash maltmiller to get 5% off your first order. With the Malt Miller's amazing customer service and Johnny's 48-hour recipe, you could order the ingredients on a Monday and be drinking the beer by the weekend. Speaking of which, it's Friday. It's 5pm. So enjoy this week's Friday 5pm podcast. Let's talk about beer, Johnny. Let's talk about AVB. Let's talk about Imperial Stouts and Imbibiots and Wicked Weed. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of The Bubble. This week we've got Colin Gillespie from Cave Direct, your old boss and my, my current one. Yeah, so Rob is very careful in what he says. Yeah. Actually he's not. Um, yeah, this is one long word from our sponsor, but I promise you it's incredibly interesting. Um, so Colin Gillespie, MD of, of Cave Direct, has has, has been running a, a specialty beer distribution company in the UK since 1979. Um, so when it comes to getting context uh, over the beer industry and over life in general, uh, he's very worthy of listening to you. Yeah, it's something that both of us had kind of discussed and wanted to do but didn't want to make it seem like we're doing it for the sake of it. But we both know Colin so well and know how interesting he is and the story is. And I suppose for us, everything we talk about in craft beer terms is so short. And to hear a little bit about the history of where it was before, you know, 2009 or whatever date you want to put on it, when the revolution began in the UK, he was there 20 years before that. Yeah, yeah, he he <laughs> he'd been trying to instigate a little revolution uh, himself uh, since about '84 with brilliant Belgian beer. So he was bringing in Cantillon, Bone, uh, Duval, um, and uh, loads of myriad brands that are now dead. Riva Pills. Riva Pills, that, that classic. Number one. Um, for, for decades and decades before the UK really knew what Belgium could produce and what it itself as a country could produce outside of uh, some really lovely traditional car scale. Um, so nobody's really done more for Belgian beer um, and Colin in the UK when you say like do you want a medal like he literally has the medal for what he's done to, to for Belgian beer I mean um, speciality beer wise I don't there's no one who yeah. comes close really absolutely um, it is a very young industry that we're, we're all in yeah. in this sort of revolution but he was there in the early days before we get started a quick notice uh, of an awesome party that's happening Rob yeah, so as we mentioned in this, that Cave Direct turned 40 years old this year. Um, and to help celebrate, we are going to throw a bit of a party at the Beer Merchants Tap in Hackney Wick. So on the 14th and 15th of June, we have invited down all the breweries we work with, um, old and young. Not Riva Pills, but <laughs> um, a lot of other Lambic producers, Belgian producers... Uh, Scandi guys, we've got Americans, we've got all the great guys from the UK. So we're having a big party. Um, all of the all of them will be pouring. There'll even be a lambic bar. So it's going to be really special. So if you want to come along, uh, go on to beermerchants.com. Uh, you can get some tickets for the for the the sessions. There'll be three sessions in total, um, and it'll be a, a good few days of beers and laughs. Yeah. So yeah, links uh, in the description uh, for this podcast, and obviously you can just go to our sponsor, beermerchants.com. Um, so here it is, episode eight with Colin Gillespie from Cave Direct. Oh, I love that stuff. Been drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. You know, I, I they recently decided to add more hops to it. To it. 
You know, I, I've heard later recently to have add more hops to it, to it. So welcome, Colin, to the bubble. Thank we're, you. We're sat, sat in your pub. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Um, I think we mainly wanted to get you in today to talk about the sort of history of beer, because you've been in the game for quite a long time in the speciality beer market. Um, but most of the companies we talk about and the breweries we know and love are like five years old. Yep. Um, six years old, maybe ten years old, but you started it all back in 1979 when the market was probably very, very different. Very different indeed, yes, yes. So how did you get into it? Well, my father started the business in 1979 and I joined in 1981. Um, Dad had started a business at the age of um, 53, he got a redundancy from his last job decided to um, to tour Europe and buy interesting wines. Um, he also had a, an interest in beer, and my mum coming from Belgium, uh, that's what also got us interested in the beer side of things, and this wonderful world of um, Belgian beer was, was discovered um, sort of in 1981, 1982. We then opened a shop in 1984, and we put some of these beers in the shop and we soon realised that there were sort of 650 breweries in Belgium, a population of 10 million people, monks making beer and all that kind of thing, um, which we didn't, like most people, you think, oh yeah, yeah. And then we discovered it, there actually were monks making beer. Um, so it became very, very interesting. Uh, Do you know what type of brands were you working with? Well... What was number one? Well, number one's probably... No, I, I will say Rochefort 10, but... Um, <laughs> uh, was, mean, what was the first beer? Not was... Uh, what were you drinking? The first beer, to be honest with you, was at a Pilsner, a Riva Pils, which is a little brewery in, um, in the Flanders, a uh, family-owned brewery, and he was doing a... Uh, he had a stand in a supermarket and my parents were there they tried some of the beer and and dad had a um a wine bar we were delivering to that wanted a continental pils so we we liked this reva pils and we started bringing that into the country but also discovered then that they actually owned leafman's as well this this little brewery so that became very interesting and my dad was just amazed with um the Leafman's framboise, you know, the champagne cork, paper wrap bottle, and w- when you pop the cork, the, the actual quality of the liquid sort of was um, kind of really got started in a way. It was then we knew that these beers were a little bit different to what we were used to. I just, I love the fact that somebody just doing tasters in a supermarket actually worked because i've taken many a taster in a supermarket in my time and i've never bought the fucking thing whereas oh, no. you were like we'll start a whole business on this thank you mr taster yeah. i just imagine like your mum and dad you know <laughs> going up to you know they were a normal mum and dad just going up to someone in the court you know and, and just trying their beer and say, oh yeah okay then we should and, start a yeah. revolution yeah. <laughs> 40 years later yeah you know, here we are what um, was the um reaction in the market then because you were wholesaling to begin with were well, you or was we, we were shop? wholesaling to begin well we started wholesaling and then we opened a shop in 1984 but we weren't wholesaling we we're only wholesaling um wine well sorry, wholesaling. we were wholesaling wine and beer but wine was the focus until we opened the shop in 1984 and that's when beer really came into it but with the Belgians, they were the weird and wonderfuls, you know, who drinks beer of 10%. You know, we were competing, everyone thought against Tenant Super and Carlsberg Special Brew, so it was, it was difficult, you know. And in, in pubs and bars, what type of things would you be, what were the more co- sort of common lineups? Was it Continental Lagers or Cascades? Yeah, just? there was um, Hurleyman's, which used to be called Hooligans because it was 5%, and, you know, Drinking a five percent lager in those days was was quite out there, sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it was even in in our day when we were getting starting drinking in the mid two thousands. That you know, you're like, oh, you couldn't have couldn't have three pints of Stella. That's five five one. 
Um, and and <laughs> little did we know, there's a little niche of camera people buying from your shop and necking Rochefort 10. Yeah, exactly. So, and then trying to introduce beers, yeah, at 9, 10% was, was not easy. Uh, and to your knowledge, was there anyone else really doing specialty beers in the country? Um, there were Clays in, in, in Yorkshire. Yeah. They were doing a little bit. And there was us, and that was it, really, just the two of us, yeah. Um, and then... I always enjoy the story you say about uh, people returning candy onto the shop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was so frustrating because, like I so say, I was still young then, but my, my father had a real passion for Lambic and we had candy on, you know, because it was, even in those days, especially my camera members, seen as like the holy grail, you know, of, of, of Lambic was candy on. But we had so many people coming in the shop They'd walk back in, you know, with a cork out saying, look, I can't drink this. There's something wrong with it. Um, and even Cantion had started putting a little um, sugar capsule thing to go with your beer, you know, which is just obscene now. But in those days, that, that's what we're up against. But, I mean, that was in the time when, I guess, Lindemann's and Tinnemann's started sweetening the actual liquid, whereas Cantion were putting it on the outside. Yeah, sort of I think style. it was and, and Bellevue. You know, but Bellevue and um, Maltzer Beat, you know, they were big, big, proper breweries, but then they they couldn't compete, so they started sweetening their mm. beers, yeah. And it, it changed the whole product, really. So it's even though lots of people were return, returning Cantillon, I guess even at, at the point of sale, you're going, just so you know, but they were still like, whoo, that is more sour, more extreme than I expected. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They just, but yeah, they, they just... They'd had never had anything like it before, so you had people had to understand the product. Mm. When you sold it to people that just wanted to try it, they thought, you know, there's something wrong with this, and <laughs> they'd bring it back. Said, no, no, it's supposed to taste like that. Yeah. And has has the quality of of those lambics gone up? Have they outside of the sweetening? Do you think they've got more rounded and more polished as a beer? Were they funkier back then, or is it just the palates? No, I think. Um, the palette's changed. I think there's appreciation of them, and sometimes, I mean, it took me a long time before I, I was not keen on Lambic, but I went to Dry Fontaine in the early 90, I think 91 or 92, and I suddenly got it. I went there, the smell, and then when I tasted it, it, it tasted different. It mm. was, um, and I really got into it since then. I, I love them, but I did struggle before then, so I can understand why people do struggle with them but um perhaps they have become a bit more rounded i, I don't know but because i'm so used to them now yeah they, they, it's yeah yeah it's like when you see your nephew every now and then and he's shot up you don't have that point of reference like you've seen it slowly yeah change slowly. over 30 yeah, years yeah, yeah yeah um you know and i've uh, um like boone mariage parfait is you know my favorite one of my favorite beers i love that beer um again but, an eight percenter so yeah <laughs> No problem. <laughs> Sipping beer. Yeah. Colin does have a bit of a penchant for strong beers. So much so he named his dog Rochefort. Yeah, I've had a Rochefort. I've had a Shimmy. Um, <laughs> what kind of dogs are these? Ridgebacks. Ridgeback, right, okay. Ridgebacks. So they're big, yeah, strong dogs. Bad, yeah. It's not a Chihuahua you've named. Not a uh, Chihuahua, no, no. Named <laughs> Golden Drac. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for beer passion, though? <laughs> yeah. I, I had a mate who named his dog Stella after the beer, and I, yeah. I never quite approved of that one. It was a, it was a, it was a staffy as well. So it's just like you're Vicious. just setting it up to be, uh, to be ridiculed. Um, so how did? So you started off in wine. You opened the shop in '84. What made you switch predominantly to beer? Um, I think just the beer got so much more interesting, and we discovered this world of beer. And we just thought, you know, people have got to find out about this. You know, this is incredible. So that's kind of what's always driven us is it's just wonderful beer, you know, and it's beer as people didn't know, you know, it was different. So... This summer, I'm going to be hosting talks at the Manchester, Bristol and London Craft Beer Festivals, giving festival goers the chance to attend tutored tastings, rare beer pours, meet the brewers and even guided tours of the bars. 
These three festivals are the highlights of my events calendar, featuring some of the world's best breweries with delicious restaurant pop-ups, great music, and a really welcoming party atmosphere. It's the third year I've been hosting the We Are Beer Tastings table, but for the first time, I'm delighted to offer all of our listeners, viewers, and Patreons £5 off a ticket when you use the code CBC5. Just hit the link in the description to buy. See you there. Um, and how quickly did it have an effect? How quickly were people... Were they as wowed as you? Did you see growth quite quickly? Not really, no. no. It was, uh, <laughs> it was, it's a long... I mean, people could appreciate them, I think, but um, perhaps they didn't know how to drink them, where to drink them. Um, you know, we, we've got a culture, you know, we're a, a pint culture. Mm. So to introduce these beers in, in these sort of fancy glasses, sipping beers was quite... Yeah, we, we only pop a cork on a special occasion, I guess, whereas Lambic is, you know, some of them are special occasion beers, but some of them are just like, every day, just yeah, goes, exactly. yeah, it's just, it's what, what you drink in Brussels, it's the champagne of Brussels. Yeah. And then, were you delivering mainly into sort of London from Kent? Was that where you were? Yeah, most of it was, was? was into London. Um, the other thing was that nearly all the beer we did was in returnable crates. Yeah. So that was quite novel as well but um yeah so we we were delivering into london mainly yeah and you you were the the main supplier for belgo which when it started was a uber trendy place yeah yeah it's uh i mean most of our customers trade customers to begin with were either big camera pubs or camera festivals did a lot of camera festivals but then uh these two uh well an anglo-belgian and a french-canadian guy turned up in Camden opening this little Belgian restaurant called Belgo, um, 60-seater restaurant, and we we actually read about it, and so my father went there, um, introduced himself, and yeah, they started, but they only had 20 Belgian beers, were really struggling to get the beers in, and that's where it kind of started, and we, we, we were increasing, because we had them in our shop, we, they then went to like the famously 101 beers, which then was just whoa. It, that was way out of it. But that kind of that was an interesting clash because you had the camera very traditional, then you had these young guys, trendy guys. I mean, the restaurant was very was fantastic, but the, the design was great. Very different from that camera crowd, and that also made it very interesting because on you know you had two sets of types of you know on, yeah, yeah. on either side and yet you they both loved the product and you kind of that's when you knew perhaps you have got something on the winner inter- yeah in- interested a lot of people he said um you said that people were traveling from new york like like far-flung places to go to belgo yeah which i find mental because it's it's kind of like the one of the first examples of kind of fetishization of beer in that they they fly into belgo in london but they could have flown to belgium all their lives and had this similar like the beers and the food it shows you i mean these beers were around for a long time but it's the environment you mm. put them in as well you know everything's sort of um relevant and i think the design of belgo central at the time everyone dressed in monks and but the food was very good the service was fantastic the ambience was was incredible and it was like theater you know you had all these guys dressed in monks but because it was completely full the whole time you know with these hundred different beers all these different glasses it was sort of theater so a lot of people were talking about it and it created a real buzz i mean you could have a lot of these beers in Belgium, obviously, but you'd be walking into, you know, a dowdy little restaurant and you'd order your Westmail triple or whatever. They were kind of... So that that's kind of put it on the map a little bit. Yeah. Mm. Out of the 20 beers that... Or can you give examples of the, some of the 20 beers Belgo were stocking before you? I mean, the, what, they, what brands were they dealing with? They would have with? had the Trappist range. And, the, and do you know where they got that from? They would have perhaps a, a wholesaler in Belgium. And just... Yeah, and just trying to bring themselves. it in, but yeah. it was a nightmare for them because they, they couldn't work the customs and everything, so they were struggling. Um, and they also had Leafman's uh, framboise on draft as well, so we got that in for them. I'm not quite sure what lager they were selling. Um, I think Bell Pils from which is a brand from Duval, which I'm not sure if they do that anymore. 
I don't think so. Yeah. Um, And was that a real sort of changing in the tides for Cave Direct then, as far as less focus maybe on the shop and more of a shift towards? Yeah, well, that's when we started to go more into wholesale. And I think Bell got 91, 92, something like that. And we closed the shop or sold the shop in 98, something like that. So it was the beginning of the end for the shop and us moving more into wholesale with beer and we slowly stopping the wine as well. And did you notice a, a, an uptake and a lot more interest or was that quite a slow process as well? It in was the, a the slow 90s? process, but because Belgo had such a name, they ended up with sort of about 10 restaurants around London they franchised one in New York. They franchised one in Dublin. I mean, we had a little warehouse in Dublin. I used to go over there once a month and, and take the beer there. They also franchised in um, Jersey, of all places. Did you really? have a warehouse there? Yeah. yeah. You had a warehouse there as well. We had a little warehouse there. So we've always been... So you had up- one warehouse servicing one restaurant? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A hundred different beers going there. and wow. um, Yeah, that was not... But I've, you know, I've always had an interest in the logistics side of the business. So, um, so it's like that, a challenge for you. You're a like, real challenge. Right. Yeah, yeah, it was a real challenge. We, you know, and it was, you know, it was a passion as well. So, you know, whether we made any money or not is another thing. But, um, <laughs> it, it was interesting. But the other, the good thing about Belgo was it was very well run at the beginning. Um, the staff were very knowledgeable, and. What it created, because it was, you know, it, it created all these these people that were learning about beer who actually worked there. So as they stayed in the trade and they went to other restaurants, we used to get a lot of calls saying, oh, I've just joined this restaurant, this bar, and I used to work in Belgo, and we had this beer, can you get it for us? So that's kind of how it, you know, that really helped us. And then when did you start becoming aware of the, the big C word, craft beer? Oh, I hated that word. <laughs> <laughs> we were um, speciality beer or yeah. Belgian beer. Um, craft was too Americanized for me. I didn't. Um, I felt uncomfortable with it. Um, I did. I don't know what I feel about it now, but I did get used to it, and I, I understood. And it was a good word at the time, and and you know to some extent it still is now, although it's obviously misused because um, craft has become so popular. But you know, being with our sort of our, our Belgian beer background, I was saying to Johnny earlier, you know, we, we think the Belgians showed kind of the world what could be done with beer. You know, I'm not going to say, oh, they do the best beer, they did the, but they did show what could be done with beer. And I think the Americans really took that on board because they'd never a culture of their own. We had a culture in the UK, you know, Cascade yeah. was our culture and we didn't really want to mess around with that too much. So they, all these, these Belgian beers went over to America. The Americans started, you know, this arrogant bastard and, and Fat Tire, all these brands. Yeah. And, yeah, they started filtering their way into the UK um, and that kind of kick-started the, the UK Sort of rev- and that this is where craft came into it. But, but when did you start noticing it or becoming aware of, of craft beer or people discussing it? Or um, I suppose nine, ten years ago, was it? Or, okay, so as recently as that. Yeah. So before that, you had um, Michael Jackson was a big. Yeah, help. yeah, Michael Jackson. I mean, he did a um, the Beer Hunter show on Channel Four in the early nineties where he went to all these little Belgian breweries and he was sort of wax lyrical about them, couldn't believe. And then he made his name almost on Belgian beer mm. and he became revered all around the world. He was on know. Conan. I watched, I watched on YouTube, he was on Conan. Like, that's how yeah. big he got in the States, certainly. Like, the work he did over there for Belgian oh, beer. Oh, yeah, he was, um, he was revered. And every brewery, Michael Jackson was like a god to them. Yeah. Because I think he probably kick-started it in the states as well um you know i think the first time i moved to london there was an african beer i think called lion and he had a, he'd written a thing on the back of it but i didn't know who michael jackson was and i was like <laughs> why, why is this dancing man <laughs> got such an appreciation for a strong african beer <laughs> ah, it's a different one yeah. um 
So, I mean, he did a lot for Belgian beer. I think it's fair to say that you and Cave have. Um, you, um, when we were over at Brussels Beer Week, you had a medal, which I immediately wanted. What was, what was that? All right, that was my, um, yeah, my, my knighthood from the, the, the Belgium um, Beer Association. They, uh, they, every year, they, they give out perhaps 12, 15 medals around the world for people that have, you know, services to, to the Belgian beer um, industry. And mm. that's, uh, yeah, so I got my knighthood um, of, of the masher. So Colin, we should be... Uh, something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> what, what year was that in? You received the medallion? Around 2001, I would have thought, perhaps something like that. So it's I've got another, I've got another 20 years under my belt. No, <laughs> <laughs> no it's, it's it's a very special thing. Yeah, I'm very proud of it. But um, do you, do you, do you get perks, or are there socials where you meet other? No, the, the only perk you get is the the, the Belgian beer weekend. Um, you're allowed, um, you know, to drink for for free. Um, oh right, you sort of flash, flash your medal, flash and, your medal, yeah. and um, yeah, and people look at you and take pictures of you and that sort of thing. So um, and beautiful yeah, Belgian women perk, flock to you. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Probably more likely Belgian beer Belgian, nerds and brewers. Yeah. <laughs> so so that medal that, that's for for services to to Belgian beer, and that, is that that's people all around the world. So Belgium knows that it has this amazing culture but they they want to push it out there as well be a bit evangelical yeah, i think everyone that knows belgium very well is their um their, their products are fantastic but they don't market them the same way as we do in the uk you know mm. in the uk we can get hold of a crap product and spend millions on it and make try and make everyone believe it's it's, it's fantastic where they just don't do that in belgium you know that but they are I think there's more Michelin star restaurants per capita in Belgium than anywhere else in the world. You know that they drink more claret than anyone else in the world. So they 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 like quality. They know what quality is, but their perhaps their branding and their advertising is not quite up to. Um, yeah, I mean they they build a beer industry based on quality, uh, yeah. whereas before the craft beer revolution in the UK beer was built on marketing teams it didn't yeah. really matter what the liquid was it was how big your budget was and how you could get into people's heads um, whereas it is a lot more um, humble I suppose in in Belgium and they really let the beer speak for itself yeah, exactly yeah and one thing I notice like a lot when I'm over there is like the, the Belgian people their sort of dislike for InBev and big brands you know they feel so passionately for their brands and they've seen InBev and other big breweries destroy them and they really dislike them whereas I think outside the craft beer community people don't really know who InBev are because they're just, I mean they're a big giant but because they don't have a, an actual brand attached to their name it just gets lost a little bit um, but the Belgians are all very very aware of like who they are and what they've done and what they've done to their, their precious brands over the years um, you must have seen a couple go yeah I mean early on I mean, we, we used to have um, Left, didn't we, which was a, well, our biggest brand for a long time, but then that went into sort of mass distribution and they kind of uh, destroyed that Did brand. Left and Who Garden go at the same time? Um, yeah, I mean, they launched... I mean, they bought Ho Garden, didn't they, from... Um, what was his name? Sellis, wasn't it? Pierre Sellis. Yeah. He was the original guy from Hogarten and they, they bought that and I'm not sure how long they had the left brand for, but uh, yeah, they've um, not done a good job with them. No, but it's sort of typical. The only thing I will say, I mean, we, we do talk about InBev. They do, Jupila is still loved yeah. in Belgium. Um, that's probably the only brand left from sort of the old InBev days that is, is revered. I mean, they, they don't drink Stella or... Mm. But Jupila is... Um, yeah. It's still the biggest beer brand in Belgium, I think, Jupila. Yeah, yeah but, but they are... Um, they're powerful. Yeah. So, you know, everything goes through wholesalers and they're quite ruthless. It goes through vending machines too. Yeah. <laughs> which I remember going to Belgium for the first time and seeing a vending machine with beer in. I was like, 
This is the land of the... Go- oh, it's Jubilee. Okay. <laughs> they also changed their name to Belgium during the World Cup, which I thought was a stroke of genius. Did they? So Jubilee just said Belgium. Over it and, uh, and obviously they had... No, you're saying they can't brand themselves, Colin. That's yeah, genius. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's quite clever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, back to, back to the C word. Um, so you've been distributing great beer for 25 years, I think, by the time... You know, Colonel opened. Yeah. Meantime, was kind of flying at that point. Kind of crashed afterwards. Um, what What did you think of the the American influence beer that was being made here? The you know the the very hoppy, the IPAs and pales because obviously it's very different from the Belgium background you had. Yeah, um, it took me a while because um, I was sort of convinced they were unbalanced and, and not well rounded. It's kind of um, you were but, probably right to be, yeah, <laughs> you know, to begin with. So once you have these thoughts, in you know, it's quite hard. But slowly, I mean, you, you get the beers being produced of quite high quality. What yeah. was um, the first sort of break off from Belgium, I suppose, in the portfolio? I suppose it was when um, Phil Lowry started working for us. Um, that's probably 12 years ago. He came in with some Mikella beers. Um, he plonked a kernel on my desk and said, you've got to go home and drink that. So I did go home and drink that and was blown away, actually. So I've got a real fondness for, always have had for kernel beers. Um, and, and Mikella, we had beer geek breakfast with mm-hmm. you know, coffee in it, you know, and it was it was fantastic. So, yeah, I so, think it was then I finally realised that other people could make very good beer as well. And you must have picked up Meantime quite early on as well, did you? Yeah, Meantime. Um, I mean, we were um, delivering to his bar in Ashford. He had a range of um, Belgian beers in there before he opened up. In, Is that um, Alistair Hook? Yeah, sorry, yeah. Alistair Hook. Yep, so, yeah, we... So when he opened there, yeah, we, we took some of his beers in, yeah. Um, but it was kind of more of a... Because it was kind of local, not that we... I'm not going to say I wasn't impressed with them or whatever, but we just put them into our portfolio because it kind of felt like the right thing to do. Yeah, and there couldn't have been many other options for local beers at the time. No, exactly, no. But were, were people demanding local beer back then? No. They wanted no. I mean, exotic I think, European lagers. Well... And then Belgian beer, obviously. And, and cask, they were, you know, yeah. they were still stuck in this sort of... Cask is the purest beer, and, yeah, you had all your lagers, but then cask was sort of... Um, you know, the beer. And then it sort of grew and grew after the after the yeah, Miller Craft then beer Then I movie. think, um, yeah, yeah, there was a, the interest in beer started to, yeah, there, there's been a revelation, revolution the last eight or nine years, and the interest in beer is just phenomenal. So we've been very well positioned. Um, we've always realised how complex beer can be so to recognise that and respect that the people that we've employed or work with us have always had that passion of how beer is made and what what beer is so I think that's really helped us and given us the respect that you know we try and you know we know what we're talking about yeah whereas so many people have jumped on the bandwagon and yeah don't know what they're talking about (laughs) So who was the first... So, so we talked about, uh, was it Reva Pills? Reva. Um, Delirium you've been with for... Yeah, I think he mm. launched um, Delirium in 1987 or 88. Idiot, I actually looked it up the other day. Yeah, for something. Right, yeah <laughs> okay. And we actually... Um, he now sells to something like 150 countries around the world, and we are... Number th- no, we're number one now, but we, we were number three for his, as an exporter. But now the other two have gone, so we are kind of his oldest. So you outlasted them, yeah, yeah. And I've seen him, you know, go from a eleven thousand hectolitre brewery to over two hundred thousand hectolitres this year. So that's, I think that's it, it, it's amazing how much has changed in the beer market, and yet Delirium seems this unmovable object that just kind of well, powers on for many years we 
we said, you've got to get rid of that bottle. You've got <laughs> to get and put it in a glass bottle, blah, blah, blah. But in the end, it's the bottle that's made it recognisable. Yeah. You know, so, you know, even he, he does very well in the States as well, as a lot of Belgians now are suffering because, you know, drink local and the quality of um, the home beers has improved so much, it's hard for them. But he's because, yeah, so... It's one of those brands, like, you still see, <coughs> I remember we... we did a consumer shirt I think it was Taste of Christmas and so you'd have all these people that weren't really into beer come up to the stand looking for a beer and they would all go straight for the delirium Yeah. and granted it would be mostly people going oh that gets you fucked up but every now and then there was somebody who would just point at it and go it's the Pink Elephant beer we love that <laughs> and it doesn't happen with any other brand I'm really aware of maybe Gamma Ray you get some people who just completely remove from the bubble that know what it is but. Yeah. yeah and the knock on effect as well like you could put it in a bar and they don't sell any for five days and then one person <laughs> gets a delirium and all of a sudden there's like ten people in the bar drinking like, oh they've got delirium on and it's just recognisable and if you go to Belgium you can't miss it it's everywhere and um, Alain's done a very good job of making it very obvious and if there's a space on a piece of plastic to put a pink elephant on it he's definitely done it so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, over those 40 years what have been your favourite brands that uh, well hopefully still going what beers do you still turn to after 40 um, years of doing it well my um, I mean Rush 410 is always you know is, is uh, I've always enjoyed a Rush 410 at the right time yeah, if it's out of stock on beer merchants it's probably it's probably uh, <laughs> not, not out of stock in my garage <laughs> um, I don't want to say it but all our the only reason I don't want to say it is because we can't get enough of it and um, but that is the one product whenever I always remember in the early years every brewery I visited every brewer would comment on Orval and, and the quality of Orval hmm. um, and I love the uniqueness of that I mean that is the same bottle the same glass since 1926 you know I've been to the brewery and he's got he's got the glass from 1920 and it's the same yeah. it's, it's an amazing you know, museum you can wander uh, around yeah. but you know in true you know they will not increase production they're on so like 57 58,000 hectolitres I think they grow up, up, like between 0.5 and 1.5 yeah and they a make year. a decision and some years they don't yeah. do anything and, it's, yeah. and is that just efficiency they're not building anything they're just like managed to squeeze an extra 1% out of their beer that yeah, year. Yeah, I don't, I really don't. I, I know it means I only employ one salesman, so, um, you know. <laughs> He's a busy man. Our allocation hasn't changed in a very no, long time, got has it? No, we a tiny bit more, but yeah, we, we struggle with an allocation, so. And it's funny because obviously the popularity of that beer has just gone through the roof, because mm-hmm. I, I think even, like, biggest craft beer nerds, biggest Belgian beer nerds, like, as you said, everyone has this appreciation for that yeah. beer, and I mean, we get a pallet in, and it's gone within two days, and then yeah. need to wait till the next month. Yeah, um, it's just amazing considering like there's so many firsts in that beer. Like first, it's it's kind of the wrong colour for most Belgian beers. It's this orangey thing. Yeah. Then it's dry hopped. It's bretted. It just well, it's a pale ale at a heart as well. I remember being in Belgium. I think it was you and I were in a hotel, and we got uh, Orval, and it was like less than two months old yeah and i was like this is a different beer totally it's <laughs> like marmalade isn't it yeah yeah um and that's another magic thing about the beer it's it's marmalade then it's i don't know like a far like a farmyard and then it goes caramelly and funky towards like two or three years it's just this it's like a there's a, a different world a little universe inside that bottle that's constantly evolving i know we've for years we've been trying to keep various vintages um, so we can try them against each other but it never seems to work we always always goes missing we did on the craft beer channel we did a vertical because we did manage to save some of beer merchants so while I was I was still with you guys I think we we did one one three and five years Um, yeah the five was why didn't you invite me um, (laughs) because there were only one bottle of each I think Um, the five year was actually not very good but the one and three were stellar but the, yeah, the level of oxidation Stella? after five years. Sorry, the other yeah, <laughs> bad use of that particular word. Stella with an R. Um, but yeah, I mean, aging all vowel is is tricky. It's easy with an, easier with an imperial yeah. stout. 
Yeah. Then there's the Lambiques. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of Boone. I know Cantillon's the Holy Grail, but um, I know Frank Boone and uh, his passion as well. And to go to his brewery is fantastic mm-hmm. to see. And, and he's got his son there as well now, Carl, who's, who's taken over the mantle. So that, that yeah. And Mariage Parfait, to me, that's the pinnacle to me. Yeah, so. I think that is my favourite gears. It's tough, though. When you do a blind taste wow. test, I pick yeah. a different one each time. Yeah, yeah. I'm a Armand Gaston type of guy. Yeah, right, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's been... So you, you, you worked with Drew Fontaine in, like, early 90s. Yeah, yeah, when they just started. Yeah. Well, I don't, not, I don't know how when they started, but they weren't what they are now. So. Yeah, I mean, today they're just... I don't know where that money's come from, but it is a giant... It's like Willy Wonka-esque. It also feels like you're in like the coolest part of East London when you're in the tap room, <laughs> yeah. even though you're just like in the middle of nowhere and outside Brussels. Yeah, like it's all it's all those trendy LED filament light bulbs and, and angular record, furniture. A record it's player. A record yeah, player. Yeah. Belgian beer has been a long way ahead of the curve the whole time. It probably still is, unless we're talking about hoppy beer. Um, what kind of lessons do you think that we can learn from? the way that the Belgian market has developed because they've you know they've had their highs they've had their lows where you know the Lambics had to start sweetening their beer to survive and stuff they've had huge consolidation where brews have sold out brews have gone bust it feels like beer is very cyclical so we should be seeing that in the other markets as well yeah it's it's quite a different market because I think the breweries that have survived are sort of small family breweries that's still very prevalent so they've been going quite a long time where I think in the UK the beers that are interesting are nearly all new breweries so it's going to be very keen very interesting to see how they develop because even um, I go to to Hoiger the Delirium Brewery it's for his son you know he wants to bring his son into the business whereas we haven't got to that stage yet mm. in the UK you know these breweries are all about what's now and sort of you know they're great guys producing fantastic beer but they haven't got the tradition so that's going to yeah. be interesting to see how our tradition now develops with these smaller brands and breweries um, so see if we will generate family businesses yeah generate or yeah how that however they develop whether um yeah I mean it's hard with family because you know that it's a big gap, isn't it, to um, bring a child into the business? So when you're a young person starting a brewery, but it will that that will be interesting how it develops. Um, yeah, I guess that's an interesting thought. Actually, I hadn't thought about the fact that if you're 25 when you start your business, <laughs> it's, it's 40 years before you can really hand it <laughs> hand it down. Yeah, which is a big commitment. But it's um, actually happened within Cave Direct. So there's three generations have gone through the ranks. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. Yeah, we've got um, my sister Louise, who, who runs the business with me. Is um, her son Lawrence? He's now been involved for, for seven years, and he's learning all the ropes. He's, he's very much he's involved. Done, done all the jobs as well. Yeah, he's done all the from jobs. driver's mate to packing yeah. boxes, mm. yeah. which is what you did as well when you started. I guess you started off driving the I was lorry just and a driver. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was driving for ten years in London. Um, I was working in the shop sort of five, six nights a week. Uh, I was going to Belgium. I ended up taking my HGV1 licence. So I was driving the big truck over to Belgium. I used to hire a truck every two weeks, a big articulated lorry, and go around all the breweries picking up bits and pieces. So I've kind of done all that that side of it. Um, Yeah, It's interesting that whether it was intended or not that... Cave Direct has is a Belgium importer and sort of a family-run business, much like so many other breweries that we work with. Yeah, yeah, there is a family yeah element to it definitely, and um, and it's because it's forty years, then it, it's got a little bit of tradition to it now. Yeah, as well, which is great. Um, yeah, what's it been like? Have you seen any any sort of negative negativity towards Cave because it's a bigger brand you know as a business gets big in the craft beer industry like the tall poppy syndrome we start trying to tear it down oh they're they're a big business 
that's the weirdest thing in the world for anyone to consider because for me it's just the same as we've always been mm. um we've got more people but we're kind of the same and uh I don't know, it's only now really, now we're approaching this 40 years, me and my sister are looking back and, and thinking, bloody hell, you know, we, we, we've done an awful lot in these 40 years. We've actually gone through about 15 warehouses. <laughs> so, you know, you start looking at all these things in the amount of people we employ, but we don't really see ourselves as a big business. Um, I think that's because it is a, a family business. Um, it's a very passionate business. Uh, you know, we have to make a profit, we're a business, but we're not, you know, making money is not our driver. So, yeah, so in that sense, we don't necessarily feel like a big business. And it, it makes me chuckle when people talk of us like that because, yeah, yeah. I still get people getting surprised that we sell things other than Belgian beer. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, whoa, you haven't been paying attention for 10 years. <laughs> Yeah, that is super weird. No, I mean, that's why I like to say that Belgium helped to show people what could be done with beer. They're not the best. I don't want to say, oh, you can only drink Belgian beer. That's no, ridiculous. It's, it's our backbone or it's yeah, our heart. Yeah, but it, to me, it's where it kind of started this whole, even this, you know, what's happened in the last 10 years. To me, the catalyst was Belgian beers because they were doing stuff with beer that no one thought was possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's interesting you say that. So there are lots of American brewers that say that, but um, a lot of the guys that I've spoken to over in America talk about car scale as well in the same yeah, reverential course. terms yeah, yeah, that they do Belgian beer, which yeah, is why there's so many awful ESBs on keg in America. Yeah, and I'd love to have been, you know, in the UK 60, 70 years ago and have had porters and everything. I mean, that would have been very interesting to see the beer we were producing then. Mm. Um, so we have a rich, rich history um, of producing fantastic beer, um, but I think it, it just went all over to cask in the end, and that kind of just took over the, the whole sentiment behind good beer was cask in this country. Growing up, you know, it had to be cask. That nothing else was better than cask, which is not true. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's still people claiming that, yeah. but they're they're the minority now. Yeah, um, as people realised, it's that the format doesn't really have anything to do with the brewing quality. Yeah. Yeah. So, big question. What do you think the sort of future holds for beer? Oh, the future's fantastic because now everyone who drinks beer wants flavour. You know, they want to, they know what they're drinking. They're not going to drink rubbish anymore. It's kind of like wine was 30 years ago and everyone used to drink just leaf from milk or a suave or something. Now everyone's got their favourite great varieties and they'll spend a lot of money on or whatever you know wine's kind of grown up and and beers to me is going to be the same thing so there'll always be room for for quality beer and the interest is just continues to grow i think i think the future is very bright um there are an awful lot of brands around i admit that and a lot of good beer around so that might be the biggest problem but the interest in beer is is definitely here to stay agree that uh, that story of Collins is, is pretty amazing from uh, being a, a I think his dad was a, a health inspector at 53 gets made redundant and starts essentially Belgian beer in the UK importing 10% beers yeah. bit of irony there <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, I mean I just think it's incredible that underneath the surface this was bubbling and bubbling away and you know to some extent it took Belgo opening to some extent it took the craft beer revolution kicking off but now you know Belgian style brewing is a huge thing in the UK and in America yeah I mean and you, you, you're right it w- was those things but that's also I mean it's 40 years in the making and 
Colin's been slogging away. I mean, it can't have all been easy and selling beer can't have had that much of an interest at times, but it's sort of his passion driving through it that's mm. really allowed it to yeah, I think start stand the test of as, time. As we nearly addressed, it's very easy to be cynical about a business that, that turns over you know, multi-millions, but that wasn't happening until 2000 and... I don't know, t- like not long before before I joined and Rob joined, you know, it was still a small, very niche company, and that was 30 years. So it's been pure passion, and now it's, it's A, paying off on a personal perspective, but B, it's paying off as a result of the whole, uh, for, for the whole scene, it's paying yeah. off. Yeah, and as Colin says, he doesn't feel like it is any bigger, and I can be testament to that. It's working for him and being part of the company it, it's a family run business and it feels like you're part of the family you know it really really does and I touched on that parallel but I think it's quite a, a nice note that the Belgium Family Brewers Association it's so, such a big thing and family brewing and passing it down through generations is um, happens a lot in Belgium and it's something that they're very proud of and I've never really thought of it in that way before, but that's exactly what Cave Direct have done from Colin's father, mm-hmm. then him and his sister running it, and now people like Lawrence coming through. Um, so it's really nice to see that, and it's it's just passion. That's what's got it here. Yeah, and we, we have a bit of that in, in the car scale tradition, some some family brewers. Um, but in Belgium, Fillers, it's, for instance. It's almost, well, yeah, no longer. <laughs> um, but... What's really exciting, as Colin said, is to look look to the future. Look look in twenty, thirty years' time and see which brands are going to be family businesses now. Like this is this isn't you know people keep talking about the craft beer bubble bursting or anything. No, this is this is the start of it being ingrained in our culture and in several families for the rest of humanity. Hopefully, like in Belgium, there's century-old family breweries. Yeah, and even in Belgium, like they have have their their downs and lots of breweries closed and there was lots of issues but those families stayed strong you know the Lambic was on its knees I think in the 90s um, and yeah 80s and 90s yeah so. and now it's just it's all coming back so it is an exciting time and I think the bubble is is very much here to stay yep and keep growing to envelop the whole earth yeah and I'll drink some 10% Belgian quad to that and name your dog after your dog. favorite um, <laughs> steady ruling man. Exactly. Yeah, maybe that's a weird name. Um, yeah, well, join us next month. Uh, as always, we don't know what the content will be, but it will be brilliant. Uh, and if you can make it down uh, to uh, the beer merchants uh, slash Cave Direct 40th birthday on the 14th or 15th, 14th and 15th of June. Of June. Um, so it's Cave Direct in good company. Um, and there'll be a few exciting announcements surrounding that as well. So watch the space at beermerchants.com. Alrighty. Cheers, guys. We'll see you soon. Got a yeast infection. Shin, 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 sh